$5 billion. 7,000 employees, 50 million patients, an episode of Jeopardy. How has IBM attempted to disrupt the healthcare sector? Is AI going to replace your doctor anytime soon? I, for one, welcome our new computer overlords. The thoughts in this podcast are my own views and opinions. They do not reflect the values of my employers. Welcome back to the Crossover Connections with Jack Wayne podcast. My name is Jack. I'm a scientist and college professor at an Australian university. This is a podcast that talks about science, technology, productivity, and how all of these intersect to inform us about the future of jobs and careers. Today's episode is back to that recurring theme that you see in all of your feeds and all of your channels and all of your social media, which is artificial intelligence, but specifically how it intersects with healthcare. This is one of the biggest fears when AI first emerged and soon you won't be talking with a nice and friendly doctor about your headaches. You'll be talking to a robot that will do all the tests and be very passionless and inhumane in looking after us as we get older. Even with the current buzz around AI, healthcare and technology are not unfamiliar to each other and the tech sector has been trying to disrupt healthcare for decades with very mixed results. So will the latest iteration of AI be enough to really overtake healthcare, replacing doctors as we know them? The first article is from The Conversation. Thesis of this article is there's already a lot of AI in use in healthcare. Very little of it is quote unquote medical grade and that it would pass the muster would allow us to entrust the lives of patients with its decisions and with its data. So despite all of the very headline grabbing tools and news around AI being very good at predicting things like Alzheimer's disease, see our last episode, as well as choosing the best antidepressant medication, there is a lot of skepticism around how usable something like ChatGPT actually is for medical use. Of course, we can think about using chatbots to answer patient questions as opposed to relying on WebMD or Google, allowing it to augment doctors' abilities to take notes, help facilitate the explanation of complex diagnosis to someone who's worried about a family member. AI will have great benefits, but there are concerns about the tools. AI will not actually replace real people, but real people will be replaced by other real people who know how to use AI and leverage AI to augment their productivity that much better so that they will be more competitive in the workplace. And really this whole episode, sub-segment of our recurring segment, whose job is it anyway? Trying to explore how AI will disrupt the jobs specifically of the healthcare sector and really specifically of doctors. I know I have a lot of medical students who listen to this podcast, a warning shot across the bows if you're a little bit worried about your future employment as a doctor and how much AI you will need to know about. The idea of medical grade tools really reinforces the idea that anything that we expose to humans and to patients who are already vulnerable needs to have an extra level of quality assurance. And right now it is the wild, wild west of AI run amok. There is almost no quality assurance across the board. OpenAI is the most famous AI company. They are not open at all. The data they use to train ChatGPT and train DALI2 is completely a black box. We have no idea what they're doing before the behavior of AI becomes more predictable. We really cannot trust it in these vulnerable, dangerous scenarios in the healthcare industry. Who is culpable if AI makes a decision? No one really knows, right? And the people who made the decision to use AI 
probably will be the ones who will take the fall if the decision is found to be bad for the patient and cost someone their lives. And this article makes the argument that not only will AI need to be integrated and it need to be improved for healthcare to work, the workforce need to be retrained to use AI in the most effective way. Hence my point earlier, we will not be replaced by AI per se, but we will be replaced by people who are ahead of the curve in using AI to their advantage. So this goes hand in hand with retraining, retooling and transforming the existing workflows to incorporate and integrate AI in a sustainable way. AI tools lack scientific rigor. The developers of the AI tools, very few of them are doctors and scientists in the sense of medical scientists. They may be computer scientists and engineers, but that's a very different skill set. Consider the risks and weigh up everything, not just by the numbers, but also by the human side of the equation. A lot of people who go into computational biology, they've been waiting many years to have a perfect computational mathematical equation that explains all of biology and can make very reliable predictions about what's going to happen. But when you go into a wet lab and do the actual experiments on living cells, there is so much variability cell to cell that no single mathematical equation has yet been able to capture the full breadth of complexity in a single cell. So we're still quite a while away from this being a very reliable partner in the clinic, being able to use AI to make predictions on our behalf and trust that implicitly. We're nowhere near that just yet. There are more positive and optimistic views. An opinion piece from someone who works for AI in medicine based at the University of Cambridge. And what they're saying is they're not putting chat GPT in charge. They're trying to implement AI in a more sophisticated way in healthcare. Effective and affordable healthcare is impossible. And there is escalating costs all across the world in the US, in the UK, in Australia. With an aging population, increased medical costs, we need to find efficiencies in the healthcare sector. And AI is one way that might speed up and accelerate the rate of innovation in this space. Intelligent computers that could simply replace humans in medicine is a fantasy. So that answers my question, at least according to this opinion article, no AI will not be replacing doctors anytime soon. AI tends not to work well in the real world and AI technology have had little impact on the messy inherently human world of medicine. But what if it's designed specifically for real world medicine with organizational, scientific and economic complexity? The AI data sets and the AI tools right now are being designed by Silicon Valley, but they really need to be designed by the profession that will end up using them in their profession. So more doctors need to be involved in the design making process. Just having access to the patient data and training the algorithm is not enough. You need a lot of human vetting and manual overriding of AI's decision in the initial training of those large language models, let's say, to be able to generate those predictable human-like responses. And I believe right now we're still in the infancy of this, we need clinicians to be more integrated into the AI development for it to be of maximal use to those very same end users. This new future where the clinical and the AI are more in sync using AI-powered personalized medicine, we can allow for more effective treatment of common conditions such as heart disease and cancer or rare diseases such as cystic fibrosis, optimizing timing and dosage of medication for individual patients and using their individual health profiles rather than current blank criteria of age and sex. And they can also apply 
in clinical trials, given that the average response to a drug fails to meet a trial's targets, but maybe you could optimize that more for individual patients given a certain set of criteria. Creating a data model of visual patients or their digital twin could allow the researchers to conduct preliminary trials before embarking on an expensive one involving real people. This keeps making the argument that AI is not going to replace the doctor, but we need doctors to be much more involved in the development of these AI tools for them to be more sophisticated and assisting with the existing workflows that doctors need to do anyway, and it would make those decisions a little bit more accurately. This is an opinion article. There's no evidence backing up the veracity of these claims about how likely it is for AI to actually impact healthcare in the way that this article says it may. And when we predict the future, one of the most reliable ways of doing that is to look into the past. This is not the first rodeo for AI in healthcare. Quite a big player has already invested billions of dollars into AI well before OpenAI became a news headline that we see every single day on our feeds. IBM. How has IBM attempted to disrupt the healthcare sector? Well, funnily enough, it comes back to an episode of Jeopardy. In 2011, IBM had a computer called Watson, and this was its version of artificial intelligence. It wasn't sentient, but it was probably the most sophisticated version of AI people had seen up until that time in 2011. And they sent Watson onto the American quiz show Jeopardy and asked Watson to compete against two of the show's most successful contestants televised nationally. Watson won comfortably, leading one of the opponents, Ken Jennings, to say, I for one welcome our new computer overlords. IBM's plans were very ambitious and wanted to use Watson, train it with all of the healthcare data of the patient records that were made available electronically over decades. And it wants to use Watson to transform the healthcare sector. This was a big play because IBM invested billions and billions of dollars. Another attempt of infusing data into medicine, thinking you're going to crack the case wide open. This is a very long form article on the conversation, all of these famous figures in history trying to use data to transform medicine, they keep coming up against the bottleneck that there is not enough data to really capture the complexity of the human condition, certainly not medically. And every time you think you've got the entire picture, you try and make a prediction, you come up short. And if we come back to Watson and IBM came up so short despite $5 billion of acquisitions and trying to obtain companies and patient data, it was sold for parts. IBM sold Watson to try and recoup some of their losses and essentially moved on. They thought it was not worth their time. You could see the appeal for someone like IBM because there's a tremendous amount of information collected every day when you're caring for patients, hundreds of millions of people. And right now, all of those patient records, every time you go see a GP, no country has an amazing database that catalogs all of these things. And one doctor really has to manually send over patient records to another doctor that's also consulting on your case. It's still a very manual process and there is no one system that talks to and aggregates all of that patient data to my understanding. In fact, if a company came in pitching this as a solution, I think all the governments would be very nervous about one company having access to all of the medical records in one single place. IBM made a bid for this about 10 years ago and they spent, as I said, over five billion dollars trying to do so and the idea was that Watson would be able to aggregate all of this information and very reliably make predictions that clinicians would find useful and IBM could then sell this technology 
to all the hospitals in the US and across the world and make a killing and a return on investment on their $5 billion. People in the technology sector looked at the lack of connectivity in the healthcare sector and said, we're going to fix it. But of course, they have to date not been able to fix it. Google, Microsoft, a lot of very big companies are extremely interested in healthcare. And the most attractive part for big tech is that it is one of the biggest parts of any country's economy and tech companies are drawn to audacious challenges like this. Go big or go home disrupt or be disrupted is Silicon Valley's mantra. This article is linked in the show notes below. It's from Slate. IBM needed massive amounts of data to train Watson. They kept acquiring different companies, Truven, Fitel, Explorus, and kept merging, looking at insurance databases, electronic health records with 50 million patients. They kept thinking they would get to a point where enough data is enough and Watson would become so good at reconciling all of this information. Unbelievably, it's still not enough data. It's still not enough data. Patients were not getting recommendations that were relevant and it was suggesting a kind of treatment that wasn't available in the locality or the recommendation did not square with the treatment protocols that were used in a local institution or in the US and Europe. And this is the big one. Physicians were feeling like the algorithm, Watson, was not telling them something they didn't already know. And that is the big gap. You had to convince the end user that you as a tool are of value to them, telling them something was making recommendations that wasn't a reliable predictor of patient outcomes that were good. And if you can't convince the end user doctors that this tool is valuable in healthcare, it will never take off and will never be valuable. And I think it still comes back to not having enough data, which is staggering. You think having 50 million patient samples, that will be enough. But we have billions of people on the planet with a lot more diversity baked into our genetics than that. 50 million people is not enough. And certainly the data they were collecting on 50 million people was not sophisticated enough to train these tool sets. It got to a point where an internal IBM presentation in 2017, a doctor at a hospital in Florida told the company this product was a piece of blank. You can fill in the blanks written in an internal document and circulated amongst IBM executives, which is a shocking thing to see. The fact that they were very aware aware of how poorly this was going, that they were going to exit this business sooner rather than later. This was an internal memo, not an external memo. Despite all the efforts, they tried to rescue it. The sunk cost fallacy got them in the end. They still decided to move on. Even with 7,000 employees, they decided to sell it for parts. And the next article presents a more realistic model for how this may work better in the future. And this article is more of a research article rather than a news headline. Tasks as needs, reframing the paradigm of clinical natural language processing research for real-world decision support. The argument this article made about Watson, it failed because the system was unable to provide information that was not already accessible to clinicians. And also it didn't operate with other healthcare record systems and it didn't satisfy the user's needs. Clinicians were not going to trust it and it wasn't a good partner. Clinician-led decision-making needs to be at the forefront of AI tools. No, AI is not going to replace doctors. Doctors need to be there to make the AI a more reliable partner, I don't think medical review boards will be comfortable with AI making the patient recommendations. It needs to present the information to the doctor in a very concise, systematic, evidence-based way and let the human make that last decision. Doctors are not going to be replaced by AI anytime soon. In fact, doctors need to play a much stronger role in making AI that much better before healthcare is going to be revolutionized by artificial intelligence. In the discussion of this research paper, they highlight three main issues that will prevent or slow down the development of future AI in use 
for healthcare. Issue one, underperformance of AI on complex language processing tasks. Medical records, for those of you who are in the medical field, are a nightmare. Bad handwriting, bad grammar, acronyms, they're shorthands that only some nurses and some doctors use. There are different drugs with different versions of the names with different dosages for different patients. This is a complex language processing task. And to date, AI has not been trained on all of these different permutations of medical records other than the very clean, sanitized version that you would put into a database that it would have access to is not yet ready for prime time. It's not yet ready for doctor's handwriting, that's for sure. Issue two is an oversimplification of clinical problems. And it simplifies it as a linear task that has a series of sequential decisions. But in medicine, it's not like that. It's very iterative. It's very trial and error. Let's try this treatment. Is the patient improving? If not, let's go back, try something else. But then you have a new piece of information about how the patient responds, whether you discover a new sensitivity to a drug or a new allergy and you go back and adjust the dosage those iterative back and forth decision making processes are not linear and right now the AI algorithms are not optimized for dealing with that workflow the last issue and this is the issue that i think is the most important is explainability the black box approach of ai is a huge problem wherever ai has seeped into the workflow it can give you an output but the black box of its mystery is crucial to its perception of being an ingenious machine and to trick us into thinking it's way smarter than it really is it won't let us under the hood to let us see what it's actually doing where it's drawing its data sources from. And again, OpenAI is not particularly open or open at all. If you can't explain how you arrived at a decision when it comes to patients, you will not be able to convince the patient's family. You will not hold up under medical board review. And if you're sued for a poor patient outcome by their family, the explanation cannot be the AI recommended that I make this decision as a surgeon, and so you can blame the AI vendors. And we can see an extrapolation of this principle when you lose explainability, all that is left is culpability. And this is a headline in Australia. It focuses on the neurosurgeon, the very famous neurosurgeon, Charlie Teo. What happens when doctors don't act as they should? And what's the ruling against neurosurgeon Charlie Teo? This podcast is not a referendum on Charlie Teo. He is a rather prolific neurosurgeon based in Australia who goes and conducts brain surgeries that many other neurosurgeons won't touch because they are very risky and he's very skilled. No one denies that he's a very skilled neurosurgeon and he's willing to operate on brain tumors that other surgeons are not willing to touch and he saves many people's lives as a result of doing so. As you can imagine, if many other neurosurgeons or no other neurosurgeons are willing to operate on the brain tumor, that means that that patient has poor prognosis, the tumor is probably in a very difficult situation, the likelihood of them surviving full stop is going to be quite low. So there are going to be some bad patient outcomes, even if Charlie Teo is an amazing surgeon and the best neurosurgeon in the country, if not the world. He is fighting and lost the fight of two complaints of unprofessional conduct from the family of two different women, saying that Charlie did not warn the patients fully of all the risks and obtained informed consent before completing these surgical procedures. Again, this is not a referendum or indictment of Charlie Teo. I'm very neutral on the topic. I think he's an amazing amazing surgeon, but you can't have medical review boards authorize extremely risky brain surgeries. And I think when you go out on a limb and do these dangerous procedures without the full backing 
of medical review boards when you lose explainability, when you can't explain why you went in and did this surgery. In this case, Charlie T is doing an extra risky surgical procedure, but let's say he has an AI tool that told him the percentage risk, the percentage survival, and he used that AI algorithm to augment his decision-making process and vetting patients that may be eligible for this really risky procedure. That black box will not help Charlie Teo. Right now, he can't explain to the satisfaction of these review boards, his decision-making process. Can you imagine if it was an AI algorithm involved in that decision-making process? The risk is just gonna go through the roof even more. AI coming in to revolutionize it, we can only do so with the collaboration of doctors. And if you're a young doctor with interests in artificial intelligence, a great chance to get ahead of the curve. And we're gonna wrap up today with The Connect, our recurring segment where we revisit old episodes of the podcast, in particular connect with listeners, or viewers on the issues we covered previously. Today, we're gonna to talk about the video, Can You Trust 23andMe for Genetic Testing? Comment that I'll respond to is one from, and I apologize if I pronounce this incorrectly, Ducky Fuzz Fuzzy Duck 3594. Ducky Fuzz Fuzzy Duck 3594. Would never trust genetic companies. They might clone me and that's scary. I think this is a very legitimate concern, Ducky Fuzz Fuzzy Duck 3594. Thank you for engaging and commenting. The fear that genetic companies would take our DNA and clone us is a legitimate concern. It might be somewhat misplaced. The DNA that they have from your saliva sample or from whatever sample you submit to them, let's just assume that it's a free reign and you've signed over everything and they can do with it what they want to. Cloning of whole organisms, of whole animals and whole humans relies on the use of stem cells. So we can't just create a human completely from scratch. We did an episode previously on stem cells and synthetic embryos and synthetic stem cells. That still needs to be implanted back into a human to grow that embryo to full term. They can't just completely grow a test tube baby. So the likelihood of them fully cloning you from a piece of your DNA, we are decades away from that process. Not to mention, if you're working with live humans, there is a lot of legislation governing that in all the countries I know of, certainly in the Western countries, a dramatic amount of legislation regulating that. So hopefully that is gonna slow that kind of progress anyway. But on the technical side, it's actually very difficult to clone whole humans from the DNA alone. And I think the bigger fear here is not that they're gonna clone you from your DNA, but that your DNA has value to other companies. And they're gonna sell your DNA and sell your data to other companies that in turn will keep on using your biological data or your biometric data as a valuable resource and we have no say or no control over where that data and where those samples go. So I think the fear is not so much you're being sold and reproduced and cloned, you're value is being undermined by these companies by you wanting to find out a little bit more about your ancestry through a 23andMe spit test. Ducky Fuzz Fuzzy Duck 3594. Thank you for engaging with the video. Thank you for engaging with the episode. You can find all the backlog of episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, as well as on YouTube, BioLab Collective with Jack Wayne. Thank you for listening. I'm Jack. Hope to connect with you again next time around.